Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. This is episode 51 and this is Becky here with Allie. Hey everyone. And I am so excited to share today's episode, which is a review on the What the Health documentary. We've had so many people ask about our thoughts and comments on this, and we've kind of waited to put it out there. Uh, But knowing that the film company has a vegan agenda and compared meat to a terrorist group, I just kind of want to jump right in on our thoughts on this. (laughs) Yeah, I think Becky and I both were dragging our heels on reviewing it because that meant we had to watch it first. (laughs) So we finally have, this is how much we love you all. Uh, We both painstakingly went through and watched it. And uh, yeah, Becky, I think we just jump in with some of the biggest just flat out bullshit misinformation first. I I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And uh, let's then go into some of the connection of the positives that can be seen from this documentary and the connections that we would agree on, uh, the overlap of some of the shock and awe, which would apply to the way that we talk about conventional meat production and, and, and some of the things that we do agree with. But I think first, we just go right into the bullshit. <laughs> yeah, not sugarcoating at all. Um, so we both watched this and had like a giant glass of wine in our respective hands, I think, while we were watching it. Um, so we'll just jump into what we'd consider the top five myths that are seen in this documentary. And at the end, Allie, I want you to provide, I want to provide you an opportunity just to summarize uh, what you actually would recommend eating, what is an optimal diet when all is said and done. All right, sounds good. Let's do it. So we'll start with number one, and this really opens the film. It's kind of that shock and awe um, imagery that this film relies so heavily upon. Um, So (laughs) processed meat causes cancer. So there's this image of a mom serving her kids cigarettes over and over again at the breakfast table and equating tobacco to processed meat. Right. So, you know, we actually addressed this a little bit in our breakup with bacon question mark podcast. I think that that was uh, in the earlier couple episodes. I'm not sure. Top top 10 episodes. I'm pretty sure it's under episode 10. And uh, when this came out, so the World Health the World Health Organization classified processed meat, which does include bacon, yes, and sausages, uh, as a class one carcinogen, which means that it is 100% confirmed to cause cancer. Now, the study that was done provided scientific evidence linking both processed meat and tobacco to certain types of cancer, and and that is strong. But what's important to clarify is they didn't go into quality of meat. They didn't look at nitrite-free meat. We know that nitrites themselves are carcinogenic compounds. And we also didn't correlate the difference of lung cancer versus the correlation of colon cancer. And colon cancer is what's correlated with processed meat consumption, whereas lung cancer 
is what's correlated with smoking. So if we're talking about correlation and causation, first off, that's a big different thing. When we're looking at the research study that was done, this was an observational study. So this is going to take into account other lifestyle factors for the individual. So if we're observing people that eat processed meats, we also are going to be looking at people that typically are less active, so not exercising, people that are also eating more fried foods, generally speaking, and also eating a higher carbohydrate diet with less fiber and less antioxidants. So this is when we're observing these types of people in their intake, we're also not able to extrapolate out specifically the consumption as a feeding study would be done, for instance, on processed meats and colon cancer. With that being said, as I was kind of alluding to the smoking connection, Smoking increases your risk of lung cancer by 2,500% or 2,500%. While nitrite containing processed meats at two slices a day increases your risk of colon cancer by about 18%. So that's a pretty dynamic variance. And to put them on the same level is really manipulative. So yes, there has been connection of nitrite processed meats and uh, two slices a day, which is a lot of bologna, <laughs> actually, to consume. Um, you know, and that increases colon cancer risk by about 18%. Nowhere on the playing field of a 2,500% ratio increase of smoking correlated to lung cancer. And when you take into account the frequency of colon cancer compared to uh, frequency of disease risk in a lifetime, that puts daily consumption of processed meat driving your cancer risk to about a five to 6%. And that's also eating daily processed meats that are low quality sourced. Right, so we're talking meats with nitrites, which are chemical additives. We're talking meats that are conventionally raised, so not the grass-fed beef or pasture-raised pork that you'll find in our recipes. We're talking about those, um, you know, Oscar Mayer and the, those kind of brands that are <laughs> really gross. being yeah. used yeah. to yeah. in the in the processed meat, so also endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And so, yes, there, there are a lot of things that are negative about processed meats, and we don't recommend processed meats. And I think the biggest thing, though, is the correlation of the research data being kind of extrapolated and then compared, and it being a huge variance and a big leap to, to make that connection. So I think the numbers alone show that, that we're not serving our kids cigarettes by serving them pasture-raised pork belly or nitrate-free grass-fed, pasture-raised proteins in their their lunches or on the breakfast table. Sure. And yeah, that whole observational study piece as well, thinking about how nutrition research is done in general, we use a lot of questionnaires, food frequency questionnaires. There's not a whole lot of accuracy there. Uh, yes, for sure. So let's jump in then to number two myth. Um, and I know this was one of your favorite doctors that was interviewed. Yes. Um, and he said... <laughs> You can't, your body can't turn carbs into fat. So let's talk about that. <laughs> what was that? I had to put this in quotes and I, I feel like my brain softened <laughs> this part of the documentary. Carbs actually have an inverse relationship with diabetes was the line. Sugar is, and, and, and so what he was saying was, Actually, higher carbohydrate foods like bananas actually reduce your diabetic risk. And that was, that was also said. Um, and then another quote down the line was that 
Sugar is the Trojan horse. It's the fat in the middle. They were referring to a cookie. So the, the sugar is the Trojan horse, but it's the fat in the middle that drives disease. So it was wild. I mean, again and again and again, as I nerded out in my ketogenic kickstart ebook that we just put out, uh, I found just gamut of research connecting hyperinsulinemia or elevated insulin levels to hyperglycemia. Insulin chases blood sugar spikes and hyperinsulinemia or an elevation of fasting insulin or insulin in general is what drives insulin resistance and insulin resistance drives elevated blood sugar levels and elevated blood sugar levels is diabetes. <laughs> so I, I, I just can't even understand how there would be a, a, a disconnect here. Uh, and the, the connection that carbohydrates can't turn into fat also is a disconnect um, because carbohydrates are metabolized into glucose, okay? So initially, we'll use that glucose or blood sugar in our peripheral tissues or glands, you know, so the body that thrives on or uses glucose as primary fuel, it's gonna be used in peripheral tissues, glands of need, and then the excess gets stored in the form of glycogen in the muscle and in the liver. So glycogen is our body storage of glucose. But the liver can only store about 100 grams of glucose in the form of glycogen, and muscle can store maybe 500, and that's a really muscular person. So when that glycogen store is filled, the excess glucose actually gets converted into fat. Um, it is a metabolic process, and that's where that extra sugar goes into packages of body fat. And so higher glycemic diet means more insulin, and insulin as a pro-inflammatory hormone says more fat storage. So that was just flat out wrong. <laughs> yes, I, I would love to see research on that. He's also the same doctor that did a micronutrient or a blood test on a raw vegan and said all of the numbers were within norm. And the panel that was done was a, a comprehensive metabolic panel. So it looked at oh. nutrients in the form of electrolytes passing through the body, nothing to the sense of actual white blood cell proliferation or tissue storage capacity or amino acid deficiencies, or he didn't even run her B12. Uh, but then he did say, maybe B12 supplementation is helpful. It's like, get out of here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so now I know who you're talking about. We won't name names here, but... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, so conversely, let's just talk about what happens to protein and excess protein in the body. Sure. So a higher protein intake tends to lead to actually better blood sugar control. So protein is more thermogenic, meaning that we actually burn more calories with the consumption of protein than any other macronutrient. And protein also has been shown to help with satiety and reduced caloric intake in multiple, yes, observational studies, but they've actually also done macronutrient studies where they've looked at a higher fat diet as well compared to the Mediterranean diet, a higher fat diet that was not calorie controlled leading to the best outcomes as far as dysmetabolic syndrome, sustained weight loss. So dysmetabolic syndrome would be an improvement in blood sugar regulation, improvement in cholesterol, and weight loss that was maintained with a higher fat, moderate protein, no, no calorie restriction versus a low fat calorie restriction. But here I'm speaking to protein because that's what the whole documentary was against, right? So higher protein does help blood sugar control. It blunts glycemic influence. Uh, 
When we digest amino acids or break down protein, the amino acid compounds circulate in our bloodstream um, and they're typically required for protein synthesis or building blocks. They can also be used for gluconeogenesis, so they can actually be used to make blood sugar if needed. And they can also work to produce ketones, which is our body's alternative fuel when the body is able to use fat as fuel. So the release of blood sugar or glucose from protein via this process of gluconeogenesis, the production of blood sugar from protein, is a demand-driven process, and it's significantly smoother and slower compared to a carbohydrate blood sugar spike. So we don't even have to starve the body of sugar with protein consumption. The body can make sugar, but it doesn't overproduce sugar because the body doesn't want it because it's not an efficient fuel. So, you know, research really supports that someone that is insulin resistant and or has a pancreas that's sluggish and maybe not producing adequate insulin, after we get an excess of insulin, the pancreas kind of starts to slow down its production and starts to go a little low with the insulin, and that's when that blood sugar starts to really pick up. Someone that has insulin resistance or insufficient pancreatic function or is a diabetic would definitely benefit from a higher protein diet with lower carbohydrates. And this is because this would smooth out the blood sugar response while still feeding the muscle, maintaining metabolism, and preventing muscle wasting, which causes low metabolism and plateau or weight regain. Right, and just to clarify, we're never advocating for a high, high protein diet. If anything, in our ketogenic protocol, it's high fat, moderate protein, and low carb. Right. So we're not really having all of these concerns anyway, um, because there are concerns with a high protein diet. Yeah, I I mean, the biggest thing, and I think this would be in our points that we would agree with, but um, would be that a high protein diet can cause kidney damage, which this is a high protein diet of looking at greater than typically 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. And when we're doing macro distribution for an individual, we're typically not maxing out beyond a 1.4 unless someone's repairing from traumatic injury, you know, or in in, in in hospital setting from severe catabolic breakdown. So absolutely, when we're staying within a range of 0.8 to 1.2 or 0.8 to 1.4 and maintaining optimal hydration, high protein diet is not at risk for kidney dysfunction. Okay, so the next thing that really got me was this meat and diabetes versus sugar and diabetes trend. And uh, again, there was a visual where it was showing, you know, fat surrounding the insulin receptor, which how accurate is that visual? That's pretty accurate, yeah. But again, the fat surrounding the insulin receptor comes from inflammatory response. Excess of body fat mechanically can block your insulin um, receptor, yes. And we gain body fat again. The most efficiently from sugar so there's that yeah so, that would be our myth number three i guess meat causes diabetes not sugar and i just really didn't buy this so i looked into the one study that they cited um, so this was a harvard study and it showed that one serving of processed meat again keyword there processed meat raised the risk of diabetes by 15 51 percent so that is significant but processed meat And I believe that was relative risk as well. Um, And then we're looking at, I looked into a 2017 systematic review. So we're looking at multiple, multiple studies versus a single study um, that said that it raises the risk by only 19%. So relative risk, not absolute risk, like we talked about previously. And it's looking at processed and conventional meat versus grass-fed and unprocessed or nitrite-free. 
And was there any mechanism discussed, Becky, or this was just an observational feeding study as well? Observational and um, using food frequency questionnaires. Okay, okay, interesting. So that would be the biggest thing I would look at, right, is are we looking at consumption and causation and what's the mechanism? Because, you know, the, the thing that I can think of as far as a connection of diabetes, which again is having too much blood sugar, or inadequate insulin response, uh, the biggest connection that I can make is that potentially there's endocrine disrupting function in the processed meats, you know, so that that could play a role with the insulin release, that could play a role with the insulin docking, and that's all I got. (laughs) I I can't connect by any way, shape, or form how protein actually as amino acid compounds would play a role with with insulin resistance. I have not seen anything up to date in metabolic research. Okay, so let's talk more about protein and let's make this number four. And I think we both, we were watching this separately um, and we both like texted each other at the same time. Like, did you just hear this? Um, So we heard there's no such thing as a protein deficiency. (laughs) Why is everyone so worried about the protein? Right. So, you know, it's so wild. And I, I think we'll link in our show notes a uh, blog that I wrote on, I think it's five symptoms of protein malnourishment or, or five symptoms of protein of low protein in the diet. The number one being hair loss. I mean, I have so many patients and clients um, or people that aren't my patient yet that say, hey, I'm losing all this weight and I'm losing my hair. Yes, we could look into thyroid as a possibility. Yes, biotin and certain nutrients. But when we lose weight rapidly and we don't have ample protein, hair is the first thing to go because it's the body kind of sparing, of course, its vital organs and, and its other more important tissue. And, and hair is a low low priority on the totem pole. Um, so hair loss can be a symptom. Atrophy, any muscle wasting and myopathies, uh, weakness in the muscle, um, delayed recovery from injury, all of these are signs of protein deficiency. Low glutamine, which glutamate is an amino acid. Uh, L-glutamine is an amino acid. Uh, We're looking at food sensitivities from glutamine deficiency. We're looking at fatigue and chronic fatigue in general. We're looking at, when we do a micronutrient test, we can see asparginine deficiency as well, which is another amino acid compound, which ties greatly with the immune system, driving autoimmune disease and compromised immune function. And then just even delayed growth, especially in the pediatric world, we often see growth delay from inadequate protein intake. Now, again, with that being said, breastfed babies are ketogenic, so they're on a high fat diet and a moderate protein diet, but they're using ketones as fuel, not even glucose. So that further just states that the carbs are less necessary. Uh, And as we grow and develop, though, protein is an extremely important compound to get for optimal whole body health. Right, and looking beyond what we would state as protein deficiency, we want to look at individual amino acids, correct? Like yes. things like glutamine, like you said, that could be deficient while everything else is, you know, okay and optimal. Yes, and I mean, another one to mention is serine. When we look at our micronutrient test, those are the three that, that are assessed in the panel. Serine, asparginine, and glutamine. And I spoke to the other two, but serine plays a huge role with memory. Uh, it's phosphorylated in the form of phosphatidylserine, which crosses the brain barrier, the brain-blood barrier, and has huge research, uh, actually experimental research done on phosphatidylserine, helping with preventing cognitive decline, playing a dynamic role with uh, dementia and aging, memory, 
And so again, I know I can personally attest, and I've done so in uh, episode 42, was it? A recovering vegan episode? Yeah, that was my first episode yeah, on the podcast. Yeah, you, bro. Uh, yeah, so I, I can personally attest that I had severe brain fog and felt like a balloon head. And I'm sure serine played a big role in that as far as one of the limiting amino acids in a pure, actual biological protein that I was lacking. Yep. And they're done that as well. <laughs> so let's jump into then number five. Um, and I just kind of want to collectively comment on some of the inaccurate images. So I keep bringing this up. Um, what about the one of a digestive tract of a person versus a bear? Or maybe the giant bowl of brown rice and broccoli showing what 2,000 calories of brown rice and broccoli would look like. Okay, okay, let's start with that, okay? So, 2,000 calories, and this was this was because they were talking about broccoli and rice having protein. I mean, why would you need to eat animal products? Because brown rice, a whole bowl, 2,000 calories worth, has uh, 50 grams of protein, and broccoli has 30 grams of protein, so that's 80 grams. That's more than your body would need. Well, I do agree with that. I do agree that 80 grams is probably more than your body needs or a perfect amount for your body, pending your body's composition. But how much volume and how many carbohydrates are in 2,000 calories of rice? We are talking about 10 cups of rice to yield that 50 grams of protein. And that's 450 grams of carbs. <laughs> yeah. So 450 grams of carbs is out of control, high glycemic, crazy going to drive excessive glucose and excessive insulin and excessive body fat storage, even as a fat-free food, yes, because again, as your blood sugar spikes, you store excess sugar once you've filled your glycogen in your liver and muscles, the excess sugar gets stored as fat, yes, and 450 grams of carbs is astronomical. This is going to have a role on dysbiosis or imbalanced gut, gut bacteria. It could drive yeast overgrowth with that excessive sugar activity in the body. And like I mentioned, blood sugar spikes, insulin release, fat storage. And then the amount of broccoli that would be physically impossible to consume. We're looking at about 36 to 40 cups of broccoli, you know, to get upwards of that 2,000 calories worth, which is the 30 grams of protein that they're speaking to. So like you would literally have to eat full-time as your job broccoli for the day to yield the amount of protein that they're stating that you can get from broccoli. It, it's completely misinformation, manipulation of, of imagery. And I can't imagine how bloated you would be. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, and the gas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many enzymes you'd have to take to break down all of that right. broccoli. Oh right. my goodness. And the fact that plants have anti-nutrients. So what are you actually going to be absorbing from that? And how many of those fibers are blocking the absorption in that process, for sure? It just sounds miserable. Um, so getting back to animals that do eat full-time. Um, so oh there was gosh, this whole... Yes comparison of the GI tract. Um, and I know this had you pulling your hair out. Oh, let's was, do it. It was an anatomical comparison of what we're calling a frugivore, which I don't even know if I'd heard that I word had to Google before, it. <laughs> um, versus an omnivore. Yes. So a frugivore, for those of you that don't feel like Googling this, is a fruit-eating 
herbivore. So, you know, this is what they were comparing like a monkey to. And that's a very common uh, vegan agenda fight of, look how strong gorillas are. <laughs> gorillas eat vegetation only, right? I mean, they also do eat ants and stuff, but yeah. Um, so a frugivore is a fruit-eating herbivore where fruit is the majority of the diet, okay? And they took the frugivore versus the omnivore and looked at the length of the GI tract and they highlighted pH. Well, <laughs> it's interesting because the human gastric pH is about a one to two, which is super, super, super acidic, okay? And that is acidic to activate pepsinogen, which is an inactive form of a protein-containing enzyme. And when the pepsinogen hits the pH of 1 to 2, it activates into pepsin and is able to cleave and break down proteins into amino acids. So herbivore stomach pH is actually around a 6 to 7. Total different world. So their argument was actually... Just it couldn't be any more inaccurate. Um, when the pH is a six to seven, that's more basic, right? Um, and so when we're looking at comparison, we have a carnivore type pH where our pH is set up to break down protein. And what's interesting is if a rumen, um, a, a, a ruminant, a, a cow, a goat, so animals that eat grasses, okay, total fawn herbivores, which a cow would be a better example. And I think they didn't do this because they knew they'd get tripped up in the whole having the three compartmental stomachs. <laughs> but that's the point. You know, a uh, ruminant has a pH of six to seven as well. And they have three stomach compartments so that they can actually ferment and break down. They have a total different mechanism of how they can digest those greens and turn them into proteins uh, that humans do not have. And if a ruminant's pH drops too low, like down to a three, it actually goes into acidosis and, and uh, it can go into kidney failure. It can have severe bloat. And that's actually why we have to use prophylactic antibiotics with cows that are fed corn and grains because those foods are much more buffered than grasses. And so when cows eat corn to fatten them up because carbohydrates drive fat storage. <laughs> wow. Even the meat industry knows that, right? That's why they feed cows grains to fatten them up and create more marbleization versus the grass-fed meat, which is more lean. But when they do that in the diet intentionally to create more fat and to fatten up their livestock, they have to give prophylactic antibiotic use because of that shift in the pH, the pH becoming too acidic um, by adding in that grain. Um, so just really interesting and, and just not, not correct at all. And then we would need those three stomachs really for that 36 to 40 cups of broccoli we talked about, Absolutely, right? absolutely, for sure. Okay, so that's our top five myths uh, from What the Health debunked. Now I want to move into just rapid fire mode because there were so many little snippets and statements and images. Um, so what I'll do is I'll just make a statement and then Allie, you get three sentences, only Ooh. three sentences to counter it. Okay. Um, so the first one is, Alzheimer's isn't real. It's just mad cow's disease. <laughs> okay. Uh, so confirmation of Alzheimer's truly does require brain tissue at, at, at autopsy. And we're looking for amyloid angiopathy. Beta amyloid plaque and these tarry-like formations we're calling type 3 diabetes. 
and type 3 diabetes plaque from beta amyloid paired with tangles drive Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline. So there is something such as Alzheimer's disease. We also look at things like tau proteins in the brain, but we're seeing a strong correlation to elevated blood sugar, elevated hemoglobin A1C, three-month blood sugar average, and a strong trend to cognitive decline and diagnostic criteria for Alzheimer's with that autopsy and looking back at their blood sugar regulation as a big driving cause. Second point, sorry, this is my fifth sentence. Second point is that nutrients uh, from animal proteins are essential in cognitive regulation or prevention of cognitive decline. I mentioned serine earlier, which is an amino acid. Also, I would bring up cysteine. Cysteine and choline, which are found in egg yolks as the highest form and meats as secondary form, are very essential compounds that with fatty acids prevent oxidative damage. And there has been actual experimental research study done on choline and cysteine. And many Americans have a deficiency of both of those antioxidants and metabolites. Okay, so that was about 12 sentences, but I'll give you a break. Okay, I'll <laughs> so be this, quick. On this the next one. one. Um, best intervention for Crohn's ulcerative colitis, so those inflammatory bowel diseases, um, and MS. The best intervention was a vegetarian diet. Yeah, so there's no information for that. There has been feeding studies on the specific carbohydrate diet for inflammatory bowel disease. The specific carbohydrate diet actually pulls out all grains and fermentable carbohydrates because that's what feeds dysbiosis or bacterial overgrowth. And we have seen in clinical research that a low carbohydrate diet helps with driving remission of inflammatory bowel disease. Also, Dr. Terry Walls is doing awesome work with multiple sclerosis and neurological pathologies using a high fat, moderate to high protein, low carbohydrate diet approach. In fact, her stage three of the Walls Warriors is a ketogenic diet that has carbohydrates less than 30 grams. So just no data to back this one up at all. Moving on, um, the visual of the human cancer cells and how if you were to drip <laughs> the blood of someone eating vegan on a carpet of cancer cells, it clears off all the cancer in two weeks of eating vegan. What the hell? I, I got nothing. <laughs> I can't even, I cannot even counter that because that is out of control crazy talk, especially the ultimate manipulation of people that ate the diet two weeks and got off of, they showed a visual of someone getting off of, I think, 10, 10 medications. Mm-hmm. In, in two, two weeks. weeks. Just silence. <laughs> just like mic drop because I'm sorry. With functional integrated medicine, you can do a lot of things, but that is malpractice and dangerous and just the body doesn't transform that quickly with any approach. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Moving on. No comment. Um, so we also heard about this Dr. McDougall and some research that was done in the 1940s. Um, on how a diet of sugar, apples, and white rice was able to cure and reverse symptoms of disease, cure cancer, etc. So you looked into this one, right? Tell me what was what was found, Becky. I, I think that my brain was mushy at this point. I, I was like, I just can't. I have to close my laptop because the dripping of the vegan blood on cancer carpet of cells healing cancer was just enough for me at that point. Yep. So... 
I couldn't find the actual study. It was done in the 1940s, um, but there's a lot of continuation in his work. I think it's called the Kempner diet or Kemper diet um, as well that uses mostly white rice to cure disease. Um, And there was some research around kidney disease. So going on a low protein diet for kidney disease. I don't know that they got complete reversal, but this again was looking at... um, just spontaneous reversal is what was claimed from this study of all of these different diseases. So halting and curing, you know, autoimmune disease with this sugar, apple, and rice diet from rheumatoid arthritis to type 1 diabetes to um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's to MS. Um, and it was kind of, again, this just spontaneously cures. We're not sure what the mechanism is, no, but this mechanism. is... <laughs> Interesting, interesting. And how there wasn't information about how long they were fed these foods or... Nope. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Very curious. <laughs> Let's move on to uh, B12 being the healthiest source of... What was it? What, what was the statement? So B12 should come from a supplement or fortified foods. It should not come from animal foods. So we know animal foods are the source of B12 in the diet. Um, And what was being said in What the Health was that we should be getting this from a supplemental form or from fortified foods, not from those animal foods. Because they just felt like they needed to address it. It kind of sounds like that doctor we were referencing earlier. (laughs) Might have been him. (laughs) what's going on with bioavailability, right? So... Obviously, something in its form from a whole food, typically speaking, is going to be more bioavailable. And then there's this whole argument that animal products in general are more bioavailable because they do the work for us. Uh, But when we're worried about fortified foods, are we talking about, especially in the case of B12, which could be a methyl donor uh, and many people having MTHFR or methylation issues, genetically speaking, we definitely want to steer clear of cyanocobalamin, which is the cheap synthetic form of B12, which is in a lot of like meal replacement shakes and a lot of vegan products and like nut milks as a fortified uh, form of the nutrient. And cyanocobalamin can build up as cyanide in people that aren't able to use it and actually be a toxin. Also, taking that a step further, if, if we're not getting that methylated form or if we're taking a supplement form of methylate, methylated B12 even, and we have a COMT, other genetic variant, we can overdrive methylation pathways and get a buildup of catecholamines, driving anxiety, depression, and panic attack. So, you know, supplementation is the secondary and B12 specifically, because of its role in the methyl world, is one that you want to supplement with strategically as far as whether it's a hydroxy, an adenosyl, a methyl donor, and definitely regardless, avoiding the cyanocobalamin form. Right. So that being said, PSA, if you are vegan, yes, absolutely supplement with B12 and use a methylcobalamin form. Mm -hmm. And if you have mental health concerns, you may need to second guess your methyl and play with other versions Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, go look down the rabbit hole further into genetics and such. Okay, so now let's just talk, generally speaking, about the environmental arguments that were made um, against a protein-rich or animal protein diet. Sure, and I, I think that there's some elements of that that are true, especially when we're talking about a conventional model. When we're talking about confined animal factory operations, 
We do see a lot of runoff of sewage and sludge and contamination in our groundwater and antibiotic resistance. All of these things I am not for, to be very clear. I'm not for that. And I have spoken in my optimal eating courses and also podcast episodes that when conventional protein is the only option, I will skip eating protein at that meal. So if I'm traveling in an airport, I bring my grass-fed collagen sticks and I add those to a green tea at Starbucks and I'll eat a Greek salad, even though it's going to taste probably like crap, but I'll eat a Greek salad with olives and you know just omit the animal protein and use my collagen in there. So that's fine. But when we're talking about what they don't, of course, address and, and, and no vegan literature does is that what if animals can actually improve our ecosystem? And we see this to be very true with sustainable farming methods. Actually, sustainable small-scale farm production require the use of animals to work with providing nitrogen as an asset to the soil. So actually, their their poop is used in compost and that actually re-drives nitrogen balance in the soil and these biological compounds like you know the chickens follow the cow pies they scratch them into the ground they eat the grubs Uh, so they're actually eating protein right they're eating the grubs scratch the compost into the soil and then um, you know they're turning the soil in that sense which increases fertilization so there's definitely a sustainable method where there is the grazing cows that kind of clean the field. They do release their poop. The poop is is scratched in and used into compost matter. And then that makes more viable, nutritionally dense soil for the plant uh, growth and the rotation of crops. Okay. And we get way more into this in our um, Recovering from Veganism podcast. So I'll link that in the show notes. And we go into the environmental arguments as well as some of the animal rights arguments that are made. Definitely. Um, so I'll link that in our show notes. Okay. Good. Okay. So I've got another one. You mentioned um, babies being in ketosis. So there was a, in the um, documentary, there was a statement that babies are on a low protein diet. So protein isn't really needed in the diet. Right. And I think they alluded to babies being on a high carb diet, which is inaccurate. Uh, so, you know, human breast milk has protein. You know, n- ba- breastfed babies, as I mentioned, are in ketosis. So they're in a high fat, very low carbohydrate. They're using ketones as fuel over glucose. Uh, so they're consuming a high saturated fat, biological, animal based from a mammal, a mama. <laughs> they are consuming a high saturated fat, high cholesterol, mind you, biological compound. And that's because cholesterol is one of the healthiest brain foods, as is fat. And um, uh, breast milk is higher in fat and cholesterol than cow's milk, for sure. So it, it's a re- uh, interesting that these you know, amazing vegan success stories are looking at these short snippets of timestamp, but when we're looking one year out, five years out, 10 years out, you know, how that influences amino acid deficiency and cognitive decline, those are the types of things that aren't discussed. And uh, again, I, I think that argument of saying that babies are on a low protein diet, well, babies are on a high saturated fat and cholesterol rich diet, but they didn't want to mention that. Those are things you can only get from animal products, remember. <laughs> Right. So moving on, um, cheese is probably one of the most single disease-driving foods that you can eat. Yes. So you know, I think they said it's highly processed, high, high in saturated fat, and a lot of salt. Um, and then they said something about, oh, organic dairy 
was looked at and had just as much saturated fat, cholesterol, and galactose, which is milk sugar, uh, as conventional. Well, duh, I don't think organic dairy ever claims to have a different composition in that sense, and I think that that's a silly thing. Organic dairy is just going to be free of the recumbent growth hormone, and it's also going to be ensuring that the cow was fed an organic diet of grains and grasses, depending on if it's a grass-fed milk product or not. And uh, interestingly enough, so that those are benefits there as far as reducing endocrine hormone disruption, right? So we're not getting the hormone scramblers in an organic form of dairy. We are getting cholesterol saturated fat, which I would argue are potentially a good thing for the brain and the body needs this. Cholesterol, remember, is in every cell membrane of our body. So it actually helps to be a barrier to defend ourselves against foreign invaders, inflammatory compounds, toxic chemicals. So cholesterol has a pretty important role in our body, I would say, and that's why our body manufactures it at a pretty high rate. It's a survival mechanism. So uh, just silly. Um, and taking this a step further, when we're talking about cheese. Raw cheeses uh, are going to also provide us with vitamin K2 from the bacteria, also a form of, of course, B12, probiotics. So I think that that, that debunks things. And then one more thing with dairy that, that loves to be driven with these types of documentaries is the whole blood and pus thing. And I, I think that that is something that's disgusting as well. I'm, I don't think anyone is excited about consumption of blood or pus. And this is seen with mastitis. So yes, if in a conventional dairy farm setting where cows are just being overmilked and the poor thing, I mean, I, I don't consume conventional dairy for this reason. And I really don't consume a lot of dairy, period. But I do consume local, low heat, processed, non-homogenized, grass-fed dairy and or raw milk if I have access to it. And the difference is raw dairy farmers can't allow blood and pus in their milk because they're not pasteurizing it. So they actually are taking a lot of care of the udders of their cows. They're actually rotating and not just chronically having them hooked up to milking devices. They also use things like calendula salves and uh, applications that we would use as breastfeeding mamas on nipple health um, to prevent blood and pus. And any woman that's experienced mastitis knows that's exactly what's happening. And so it's from overproduction or from buildup or blockage. It's also a reason why antibiotics would be used, which would be another reason. That would be the argument of organic versus non-organic dairy or local versus conventional dairy. Not a variance in cholesterol or saturated fat or carb grams. That's not going to change. But the quality and the fact that you don't get blood and pus would. And, and that's kind of a big deal. And I would advocate against blood and pus dairy as well. Yep. So we're on the same page, but the argument that they're they're taking it that step further, where again, it's just getting spun in all kinds of directions. And as if there's no safe alternative, right? Right. right. Um, so what about this one? The casomorphin protein found in dairy works on brain receptors like heroin. Yeah. So casomorphin is actually very relaxing. Uh, that's why it helps put babies to sleep. It is a larger compound that can cross the blood-brain barrier, so it can, and also the gut-blood barrier, so it can cause a little bit of GI distress. And this is why I recommend using my Digest-Aid enzyme, which has something in it called DPP-4, which breaks down gliadin, the inflammatory compound in gluten, and the caseomorphin protein itself, so making that less inflammatory. And then beyond that, consumption of ghee or grass-fed whey, which would be casein-free. Okay, so what about the chickens 
chicken being the number one source of sodium in the diet. And this was a chicken that was injected with sodium. I don't know if we even need to say any more about that. Right. And I mean, beyond that, uh, are you telling me that a vegetarian bouillon cube or your ramen noodle pack is lower sodium than even a conventional sodium injected chicken breast? So yes, chicken that's injected with sodium contains high sodium. Don't consume chicken that's been injected with sodium, guys. (laughs) Let's not inject it with anything. Let's take it a step further. Yep. Yep. For sure. Okay, so that was fun. Um, so now let's give a little bit of credit to this film um, for... Begrudgingly so, yeah. Yes. Um, so what are the redeeming aspects about the mission or concept or what were the parts that we agree with? So I loved the whole, you know, a pill to fix an ill thing. In fact, I think we have a similar comment on our or, or, or line within that on our website and I, I like the idea that disease being destiny is not necessarily so. And, and the idea of they talked a little bit on this concept of the epigenome or that your environment and your diet can influence your genetic expression. So I absolutely agree with that. And I agree that in our country, there is a huge connection of pharmaceutical industry dollars spent that plays a great manipulation on disease criteria for diagnostics, as well as misinformation that could potentially perpetuate disease rate. So, you know, we're talking about a $1.5 trillion industry for diabetes, cancer, and cardiovascular disease alone. And so there is a lot of lobbyists. There is a lot of sponsorship and funding that can skew research. Interestingly enough, like all of the things that were alluded to in their documentary, so they kind of stepped on their own foot in that sense. Uh, But, you know, this is exactly how the coconut oil got skewed, um, the coconut oil study. And this was a couple months ago when the American Heart Association, who gets funded by Coca-Cola, gets funded by General Mills, and I mean, there's a whole gamut of different processed high sugary foods. The American Heart Association noted that coconut oil was unhealthy and it got this huge kickback in the health food industry and their only correlation was that it had saturated fat and saturated fats were unhealthy and that saturated fat raises your LDL. Uh, Did not talk about how coconut oil has been shown in actual experimental studies to raise your HDL as well and that the lipoprotein particle size of the LDL has favorable improvements, meaning that we make more large buoyant versus small dense, which actually reduces our risk for cardiovascular disease. So I think the documentary bring to light that your lobbyists have a, a great marketing interest in recommendations of the diet in America is true. Um, And then I think, you know, really looking into who's funding your studies that you're doing. And um, the other element of people taking 12 to 16 drugs and medications that may have contraindications and maybe they haven't adequately been treated and and highlighting this kind of sick care model uh, and emphasizing that lifestyle and diet can be helpful. I think that's great too. But again, their delivery of their message was super inaccurate and misleading that a two-week vegan diet could reverse disease and could shift for off of 12 to 16 different drugs. It's, that's just dangerous misinformation. Yep. It sounds like malpractice to me. Mm-hmm. All right. What other elements of the film were you on board with? 
So uh, they said something about farm-raised fish, uh, conventionally raised on genetically modified corn and antibiotics being problematic. Uh, they also mentioned on the hormonal influence of the fish. I agree with that, and I am a huge proponent against farm-raised fish for this reason, and that is a concern. We're even seeing issues with the salmon, wild salmon population as farm-raised salmon breaks through nets into the wild population and is creating these uh, asexual beings that, that you know now the fish organelle is being manipulated uh, based on these endocrine-disrupting hormones in the feed. And yeah, that's, that's very concerning, but you can't make that argument with wild-caught fish by any means, any way, shape, or form. Another thing that I agreed with was the antibiotic resistance in fecal bacteria and the role of, again, the blood and pus, all the things against the confined um, animal fat farming operations I'm on board with, which is why I recommend specifically having pasture-raised, grass-fed, local produced proteins. I also agreed with dairy consumption driving eczema and acne. And in fact, when I'm dealing with dermatitis, Dairy is the first thing I'll take out once I've brought their insulin down and their blood sugar <laughs> regulated, right? So I actually first go on a macro control of bringing down the blood sugar because the first thing that I've seen correlated to acne is typically dysbiosis, which is why most dermatologists are going to prescribe a low-dose antibiotic. So actually working with the gut microbiome and probiotics and reducing excessive sugar is the first line of defense. But yes, I do agree dairy can have a role with dermatitis. And I also agree, shockingly enough, with the fact that inflammation causes disease. <laughs> I just disagree with what causes inflammation. Right. So nothing like mind-blowing there. We've been saying this stuff all along. It's just the level they took those arguments to it and how it was spun. Yes, for sure. For sure. Okay. So what's the important takeaway here? Eat real food. <laughs> Eat quality sources. Eat plants in varied forms and combinations. I am, remember, pro-plants. In no way, shape, or form am I anti-vegetables and fruits. Eat locally, grass-fed, pasture-raised, sourced proteins, wild-caught fish to support your body and the environment. And then why do listeners want to consider animal protein consumption or how does it support the body? Let's just reiterate this real quick. Yes, so, you know... Biological protein, meaning from an animal product, are going to have more bioavailable compounds, meaning that we can actually absorb and use the nutrients they provide. So I've talked about this in the Recovering Vegan episode. We talked about B12 as one, EPA, DHA, the active components of omega-3 fatty acids. When we consume flaxseed, we only get ALA. To get active EPA, DHA requires liver and kidney conversions. Uh, of, of desaturase and elongase to activate that EPA and DHA, which are necessary for anti-inflammatory and cognitive benefits. Choline, I mentioned, which is highest in the egg yolks and meats, which tie to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. CLAs, only made by ruminants, conjugated linoleic acids. This is in grass-fed butters, grass-fed whey, grass-fed dairy. These have insulin sensitivity response, so they help with prevention of diabetes uh, in an animal product. And they also help with boosting lean body mass, metabolism, and weight loss. We look at the influence of collagen and gelatin as being gut restorers, helping with connective tissue, helping with hair, skin, and nails. And then I think the last thing to touch on is that there are anti-nutrients or limiting agents 
in our plant forms of nutrients. So even when we're talking about spinach being a high form of iron, remember that this is in a ferric form. It needs acid to become ferrous. And even since the heme uh, biological form of iron that's in red meat or salmon is significantly higher. And it's so funny because I have a lot of mamas come in to me when their baby is tested as anemic, when they do their first uh, capillary test. And that's, you know, breast milk does reduce in iron at eight months or, or what have you. And especially if you're doing more of a paleo baby led weaning, babies can go a little low iron. But what's interesting is they'll read things like, oh, I read chickpeas are a great source of iron. And then it's like, yes, but there's a lot of anti-nutrients in chickpeas. And what about giving your baby liver, <laughs> you know, which also has choline and uh, B12, other red blood cell building compounds. So just kind of interesting there. Going back to biologic is typically the most nourishing. Okay. So quality protein sources have their place. And for many people, they're going to be an essential element of their diet. And beyond that, we can eat sustainably for the environment and at the same time heal our bodies by reducing carbs, reducing inflammation, and adding in clean proteins and full fat. Absolutely. I love that. Perfect summary, Becky. (laughs) And then the other aspect I think we would agree on is that food as medicine has a place and that diet can influence health. Yes, yes, absolutely. Food as medicine has its place. Diet can influence your health. Be mindful of the funding behind research studies and the lobbyists and the positioning within our what we trust to be the disciples, I guess, of, of, of how we practice in healthcare, these organizations like Susan G. Komen or the American Heart Association and how they can be polluted by lobbyists. I think that's another big thing to be mindful of. And connecting food as medicine, going back to what is a whole food, what is a single ingredient, and how our body has evolved to use these to nourish our our system. So I think we've seen some amazing clinical results in our practice at Naturally Nourish with reduction of medications, improvements of symptoms. I've had successful MS warriors go from wheelchairs into walking with a walker into walking without assistance. But this is over a process of three to nine plus months and requires a lot of work on an individualized basis. There's no turnkey solution. There's one, no one magic diet approach. By just removing animal products, you are not necessarily going to heal your body. So yeah, if it sounds too, too good to be true, it probably is. Yes, <laughs> yes. And in order to really get resolution from chronic illness or disease, we typically have to do some advanced testing like a micronutrient panel and layer on a customized tailored approach individualized for that person of what their body needs and then tie that together with what diet feels best, how their system digests, the whole process, their stress levels, you name it. Okay. So no one-stop solution. I hope you guys had as much fun as we did listening to this as uh, we did watching it. And um, I would, I'm would i going to go have a grass-fed burger for lunch. <laughs> and uh, Sounds great. Put I, some bacon on there. Yes, yes. Avocado, too, and leafy greens. Thanks for listening, you guys. As always, if you have questions, put them in the Ask Allie bar at the bottom of the podcast. And stay connected at Allie Miller RD on Instagram and Facebook. And thank you for listening and enjoying in the food is medicine journey with me. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food is medicine meal plans. 
connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.